time, is it? It's soon. All right, we'll start it in that case. So if I click on this broadcasty bit, then we should be... The webinar oh. is now broadcasting. We're now broadcasting. How exciting. I reckon if we just low-key chat for a bit and give yeah. everyone a chance to log in, Minutes and just watch the intimidating participants <laughs> counter go up and up. <laughs> in an entire five minutes. Someone has already tweeted me to say that if you click on the go to event thing, it doesn't actually take you to the event. It takes you somewhere completely different and so you go around in a circle. <laughs> well, that's fun. Actively misleading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and get this out of the way somewhere. I mean, one downside of having this very fancy microphone set up over my, which is really good because I can just kind of in and out. Yeah, I'm a bit jealous of that. It's really fancy. Yeah. It makes me look very professional as well, yeah. despite being obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, hello, Sean. Hi, Sean. Um, there's people. There's people here. Hello, everybody. There's people. Hi. So lovely to see everybody here. It's really hello. lovely to see. Oh, hi. Hux is here. Yes, he is. Cool. So, I guess, hi. You already know who we are. It must be very <laughs> weird to see our faces. We don't usually even see each other's faces when we're recording. We just. No, we do, we do voice only because we um, um, we're old people who aren't used to all of this video chatting. <laughs> or... <laughs> we have to, I don't know, spend less time doodling or whatever else. <laughs> yeah, I don't want don't want anyone to see how much I usually check my phone when I'm doing when I should be paying attention to things. Yeah. So okay, so what we're going to do, everybody, uh, is the little chat thing. You can say whatever you like in there, I suppose. Yeah, Obviously, you can just uh, you can use it to gossip about us or flirt with each other. Yeah, meet like a that. new partner. Um, and then the little Q and A button, which Matty has already put a thing in, which says, "Can you see mine?" To which the answer is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if so, basically the way we're going to do it is me and Janina are going to just have a wee chat, and she's she's prepared some questions like the professional woman that she is, and like the professional woman that I am, she's I just read, I everything. left them on the notebook. Behind <laughs> <laughs> you, ready. Um, and I will try not to get too drunk. And Oliver is going to be the voice of the audience. Um, so he is going to read your questions if you so if you want to ask a question of either me or Janina or Oliver um you'll get to hear Oliver's voice for the first time which um might be overwhelming for a lot of people so <laughs> uh, he's bought a microphone especially for this so we say thank you very much to Oliver for his dedication <laughs> um and yeah so and after that Oliver will ask your questions and we'll do our best to answer them and not be um rude okay yeah so if you want questions q a <laughs> do you want to flirt chat yeah is how it happens and i, I think you should probably also just just because it's like an event be like welcome everyone we're here to celebrate emma's new book a facial thing happened on the way to the forum which is possibly the best history book title that has ever or will ever exist you know what i found out yesterday um the, so this film, A Funny Thing Happened on the Mesa Forum, was not called that in Spain. So my poor Spanish publisher had to email me with about 30 different suggestions of other titles that could be amusing <laughs> in Spanish. What, what was it called that. in Spain? 
Uh, oh, he did tell me. I'll look it up. Uh, but he to also told me that um, the reason I've forgotten is because he also told me that Rosemary's baby was renamed the Devil's Seed. And I was like, <laughs> that's such a spoiler. <laughs> a massive spoiler. Like, what the fuck? What are you thinking? Um, <laughs> and he also told me that Some Like It Hot is called like something like Going Crazy in Frocks. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, accurate. I believe that in some countries, I think maybe China, the sixth sense is called something like he is a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What was that about? Uh, it was called Raymond Crook, Skull Aroma. Sure. It's not as easy to have it. As iconic a title as we've got here, though. No, um, I can't take any credit for the title, though. I feel kind of like um, I should be able to, but I cannot. I mean, you can, because you recognised its genius immediately. I did recognise its genius half the battle. Um, Naomi has asked if there's a hashtag. Didn't think of a hashtag. Um, you <sighs> can very, do... That is the one downside with a long title. <laughs> history of Sexy Live. There you go. Hashtag History of Sexy Live. Um, yeah, and then... If you wish to chat to one another in a third place, <laughs> then you can there. Uh, what time are we at now? Uh, five past. Don't want people to be watching us just have weird chats about Spanish films. Yeah. I mean, anyway, it's fine. the thing that they came up with was calling it um, Blood on the Forum in Spanish. Sure, yeah. Um, which is Sangre El Enforo, which is pretty good. That's sounds very good. In Spanish, <laughs> Everything sounds better in Spanish. English is such a dog shit language. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a very unsexy language. It's so unsexy. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. But um, it is good for puns. A lot of yeah. other languages aren't good for puns. That's, that's true. I was uh, spent some time working with a French copywriter uh, last year and every time she wrote a pun in French, she had to explain it to me in great detail because I don't speak <laughs> it. She got very excited. It was very, very good. Six and a half hours later, she's like, so when you decline it, like... <laughs> exactly. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I assume that everyone who's here kind of knows the deal with the book, but just to cover all our bases... What is A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum about? Uh, a Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum is all about Raymond murder. Um, it is a, basically each chapter is a different type of murder. So murder in the family, murder in marriage, murder in the slave state, um, murder on the imperial forum, that kind of thing. And then each little subsection is a different horrible murder case. And mm -hmm. then expanding outwards from the murder into kind of thoughts and facts and bad puns about life and death in the Roman world and how ubiquitous death was and how from our perspective very strange they were about murder and when the murder was allowed a lot more often than you would expect. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what made you want to write about murder? Like what drew, drew you to the subject? Uh, so I love true crime uh, <laughs> I'm a like weirdo about true crime Tell you exactly how it came about was um, Do you remember when the Golden State Killer was captured? Yes um, And that was just such a big deal Because if you're interested in true crime Then the Golden State Killer or Slash Eron's Was like the one that nobody It was like the Zodiac 
Like, and it was solved in such a like twenty teens way as well. Yeah. And he because he had been created like on the internet basically because it was people um, like Michelle, what's her name, who realized McNamara. That, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> who realized that the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were the same person and kind of <laughs> he was like such a a, a, a crime boards figure. Um, and the fact that he had been caught was literally mind blowing. And so I spent like most of the day um, talking to my friend Amy, who lives in Georgia, who is also a nerd about this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and we were just chatting and chatting about like murder and how interesting it is. <laughs> and um, she was saying, and we were talking about murder in um, like, why is 1917s America so weird like this? Um, and she was saying, oh, it's quite useful though, because you can use true crime as a lens to get kids interested when you're talking about um, history. She teaches world history in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh yeah, that's a really interesting way. I, I bet there's a really good book on murder in Rome. <laughs> like, I'd be really interesting to look at Rome through that kind of crimey lens. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. I spent ages. So you had, you had to do it. <laughs> I did. I genuinely spent like three or four days like searching every possible database, like looking for anything. The only one I could find was this book, which is called Murder is Not a Crime, which is really good. But it's basically about legal text. Mm-hmm. Um, and doesn't have that much murder in it, and it's only about the Republic. Um, I just couldn't find anything. So I was like, well. Who is it that says. Um, like, if you, if you look for the book in the world, and you can't yeah. find it, you can write it yourself. It. I feel like, who was it? Was that, it was someone like Toni Morrison or something like that. And yeah. I feel like she was talking about more, like if you don't see yourself represented. It was Toni Morrison. Um, but also this is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very I really want to read about Roman murder and no one's written enough of it. So I guess. That was exactly how I ended the Agrippina book as well, which is that I just kept waiting for somebody else to do it. And nobody would. And then God bless Scott Pat. was like, mm-hmm pitch me a book in a hundred words so I did <laughs> and still nobody had written this bloody book that I wanted them to write um and yeah so I was like, well I'll write it then um yeah. and as it turned out that was pretty much the exact time that I got an agent so I pitched it to him and he liked it so we went That's from exciting. there and it turned out quite fun um <laughs> it is quite fun in a really horrible way it's one of those things where like at what point does something stop being horrible and become entertaining like <laughs> and I don't know the answer and I'm very conflicted about it and it's like it's similar to when whenever I go to you know the British Museum and I walk through the Egyptian wing I'm like at what point does it stop being grave robbing grave robbing and become archaeology because this doesn't seem fine <laughs> but also we know so much now also they've been there for four thousand years yeah um I mean that's a, that line is different for everybody I think it is. I I Um, think it's potentially even on an individual level, then on a case-by-case basis. Like, I have Um, quite a high tolerance. um, Yeah. As for, like, what I consider to be horrible and what I consider (laughs) to be highly entertaining. Uh, And the stories that I sometimes tell people, they're a bit like that. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because of Chris Morris, because I grew up reading, like, watching so much Chris Morris. Sure. uh, And Jam which what somebody once called me evil for liking. Cool. Um, I mean, she was crackers, but <laughs> uh, the, that I have quite a, quite a high tolerance for horrible. <laughs> yeah, I think I do too. Um, um, 
the next question that I wanted to ask, which is outlined a bit in the book, uh, is what I've just written down what murder, because murder. I feel like uh, in general, our moral assumptions about murder are that it is when a person kills another person, but that's not entirely the case. Oh, no, I've got a whole chapter on that. <laughs> <laughs> I did read your book. I thought, I thought uh, are, we, are we jaunt through the first chapter? Might okay. Be a good way to... um, this was the most difficult chapter because I got really bogged down in what is murder. Um, and I feel like if I'd be, you'd be giving me another year to work on it, like that chapter probably <laughs> would have drifted, like been cut entirely. Um, as to like what the... Um, Basically, a person killing a person in legal terms, like in objective terms, is homicide. And then whether you call it murder or not depends on how you feel about it. Essentially, it's entirely contextual. Um, So if I killed you right now, well, if we went on different land masses, um, (laughs) (laughs) then that would be murder because we're both civilians and... We are like there's no context in which case it would in which it can be justified. Um, mm-hmm. But if I if we were at war, for example, if for some reason London and Belfast went to war and there was a legal state of war and we were fighting against each other and I did the exact same act and like and I stabbed you in the head, then that would be not murder. That's justified. Or if you had been convicted of a crime in a place which has capital punishment and I killed you then not murder that's something else and so and then you have all of these very complicated legal definitions of what murder is and Mm -hmm. in terms of like if you are in I got really spent so much time reading American murder law because it's different from state to state and so it's really so interesting in terms of like what counts as first degree murder what counts as not murder that chapter wanted to be as complicated as possible yeah, that chapter was so long it had so many examples in it about like in some I think it's California like if you are in the vicinity of a murder and you're committing another crime then you can still be guilty of the murder um so if you were so if I was robbing your house and then Jamie killed you and those two things just happened to happen at the same time then I would still be guilty of the murder even though I didn't do anything okay interesting I don't want I hope that doesn't (laughs) I really hope not and I apologize that you're my like victim at all times (laughs) or there's this like other states have this thing where you can be found guilty of first-degree murder if you supplied somebody with drugs and then they died of an overdose, even though it doesn't fulfill any of the criteria of murder, really, because you didn't intend to kill them in any way. Um, But that's on drug problems. So if I and you overdosed on them, even though I wasn't there or involved, even if it was six months later, I would be guilty of murdering you but it never happened in any other state. So it's like all completely contextual what murder is. So basically I decided to make it mega broad yeah. in the book and just be like, look, if one person stabbed another person, it looks dodgy to me. <laughs> I've decided because it's it is murder. even as complicated as it is to look at the legal definitions of murder and not murder and manslaughter and first and second degree, whatever. Now it's even more complicated to look at what was, uh, what counted as murder in ancient Rome when they had completely different ideas about humanity than we do today. And indeed law, because they didn't really 
code. They had a civil law code and you could take somebody else to court for doing a murder. But um, you can't, like, there's no police going to come and arrest you for a murder. Because essentially, <laughs> um, this is, I might have uh, just misunderstood your book entirely. My understanding is basically the reason They care about anything that impacts them as yeah. a governing and body. they're not really a state until, like, as we would recognise it, and they're just not interested in the personal lives of people mm. for the most part. And when they are, it's only really the personal lives of the ruling elite, like the forties that make up the ruling elite of Rome. Um, and so they're just not... They don't neither have the capacity nor the interest to develop the capacity to be regulating who's killing who sure. or show any particular like official interest in that. <laughs> it might be very, very interesting on a personal level and it might be something that causes a huge amount of scandal and gossip and whatever when people are running around in the streets or living their personal lives, but it just doesn't have any kind of impact yeah. um, in, the real, in the kind of real world. Um, so, yeah, Oliver's just said his internet is dropping, so I've just started recording. Okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, but you're right, they just have no... And the the theory of the book, which is also the theory developed um, from Murder Was Not a Crime, is that as the state becomes more and more centralised and focused on one person, it becomes more and more important to control who can kill who, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Because when when the state is diffuse, if you kill somebody, it can't affect the rest of the state. When power is diffused across everybody, if you kill one person, then you can just get another person to fill that role. It doesn't really, nothing's going to fall over. Mm-hmm. But when you, everything is resting on one like thing that's spinning, if that one thing gets knocked off, and then everything falls over because nobody knows what to do. <laughs> um, so it's very important to start being worried about who can kill who and they gradually very like over hundreds and hundreds of years through mostly like imperial edicts which are just like one day hadrian somebody comes to hadrian with a problem and he's like mm, attempted murder is a crime now and then and then that then attempted murder is a crime like um it's just ludicrous yeah yeah so sure just so, someone's got to make it up at some point for it to be a thing yeah, um, and then it sticks around for long enough that Justinian writes it down, which is very useful for us. <laughs> Justinian um, hasn't written it down. <laughs> anything. I feel like people who read your previous book, Agrippina, might have very high expectations of <laughs> what Roman murder looks like based on um, the end of that book. So how common was it for murder to be done by wild booby trap or Rube Goldberg machine, etc.? disappointingly uncommon um part of the reason why everybody's so fascinated is that uh, everybody loves a bit of a like it's so wild everything <laughs> that that Nero tries to do <laughs> um that it's just so, like nobody can help themselves but constantly repeat it um but there are not that many that are wild ludicrous situations it's mostly poisonings and stabbings to be honest sure i mean i guess that is one of the some Most of easier i mean obviously nero's plan didn't work and it did end up having to be a stabbing it did have to end up being a stabbing because as it turns out 
even when you've got the entire state on your side and you're a very rich man and you've got a collapsing boat if you don't know that your um <laughs> you don't know that your mom can swim and doesn't help <laughs> yeah you do want to do a bit of research basic research um, when we hear accounts of murders like that, they're like Agrippinas. And um, if if people have listened to Rex Factor, there's a Scottish king who died by means of a wildly ingenious but also very unlikely statue situation. I love that statue. It's situation. amazing. Booby trap by statue. When we read historical accounts of death like that, how much can we take as a given? And how much? <laughs> Mm, maybe there was a statue on a person with a bow and arrow at that point. Or, I mean, um, I feel like Graham would better answer that question than me about Scottish. Well, I mean, uh, the, <laughs> but, it's also like the boat and the, the bed, yeah. the collapsing bed. Well, the boat and the bed are collapsing and everything. There's, I mean, there's a lot of debate about um, how much of it is fictionalised and the answer is as much as you can believe anything that is described by an ancient Roman historian, <laughs> which is... Um, just don't believe the details essentially like you could they don't tend to make up entire situations <laughs> uh, as far as we can tell but we know that they will make like they'll embellish the details to fit what they want so when they are saying when they're talking about a day like Tacitus's description of the of Agrippina on the boat for example is extremely detailed and full of imagery and is you know, it's a very beautiful piece of writing because it's got all this kind of slow, languid language while she's getting on the boat and then floating across the river. And then all of a sudden it becomes very exciting when it falls apart and the thing falls down and knocks someone over. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but mm -hmm. it's very evocative. Um, and it is because Roman history is a literary form rather than any kind of sense of objective reportage. Mm -hmm. um, and there's Graham, uh, Kenneth II. Kenneth II. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and he, yeah, you know, it's it's not until really quite recently, like into the 19th century, really, that the idea that history is a, is a supposed to be an objective reportage of facts, um, or chronicles even, maybe. But even with chronicles, like they are picking and choosing what they are reporting. Um, the the idea of history is is a it's a literary form like like the novel it's like a genre of writing you write novels you write poetry you write biography and they have their forms that you fit into it's like so um, basically anything recorded longer than a couple of hundred years ago you have to account for the fact that not only was it written by someone in their own particular context and with their own particular biases and with their own agendas they were also making art as much as they were yeah, recording exactly. history. Uh, and you know and that's still the same today like when I write the kind of history that I write I am writing to entertain a fairly specific audience which is people in their 30s who like Alan Partridge quite a lot <laughs> um, and when like I know James Holland writes he's writing to entertain people who really fucking love the war for some reason um, mm -hmm. and you know, we both are picking and choosing what we include because we have our, our audience in mind and how we present the information. Um, this feels like something like a crucial absence from education in history. <laughs> it is. Because 
historiography so, would be so much more useful than learning dates. It would be so much more useful. No one ever told me that uh, sources could be wrong or lying or <laughs> um, just trying to sound beautiful as much as they were informing. Um, no one told me that at high school and no one told me that at university. And I feel like it's important. It is important. I think that if we, well, I don't know. This is my second glass of champagne. But um, <laughs> when I rule the world, we'll teach historiography instead of dates. And then you can go off and learn dates. And I will. I approve. I think that would be <laughs> very, very good for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, did you, I don't, there are a lot of murders in this book and some of them are kind of grim. There are some, it, I found while reading this book that there are some types of murder that even a distance of 2000 years cannot make anything, make yeah, them anything other than depressing. heartbreaking and depressing. Yeah. So we won't get into those, but of the ones that aren't so depressing, did you have a favorite? Was there a favorite fun murder? A favorite fun murder? Um, I well, I really like. I'm trying to think of which phrase it without making it sound like I really well approve of murdering your wife. Um, <laughs> I enjoy. I very much enjoy Tacitus's telling of the murder of Apronia by her husband. She's the woman he gets thrown out of the window. Um, and the reason, only reason that Tacitus tells it is because there's this massive scandal, and Tiberius, who's the emperor at the time, gets involved. Apronius' dad is this extremely famous general um, and Apronius' husband is like I must have just fallen out the window while I was asleep, what a mystery uh, um, and Apronius' dad's like no she didn't she's not a fucking idiot um, so he goes to Tiberius and says look mate do something about this Tiberius is presumably confused as to why he's been asked to be involved in this but he does um, and he is a really interesting guy because he seems to be in, kind of insatiably curious about stuff um, mm -hmm. and he loves collecting things and he'll always go and look at something if someone tells him that's interesting so um, there's a thing about him being the world's first paleontologist because anytime anyone brought him a giant bone he would go and have a look at it he fucking loved them but obviously they're dinosaur bones like <laughs> uh -huh. that people are bringing him um, but they didn't know about dinosaurs so they think they're giant bones um, Which is reasonable. Yeah, perfectly reasonable. Um, but anyway, so he decides, he gets interested, and Apronis' husband is not making much sense with his, like, oh, she must have just fallen out the window story. So Tiberius goes and has a look at the crime scene. Like, he goes around mm -hmm. to look at He has a wee poirot. Yeah, he has a wee poirot moment and tries to deduce. Um, and Tiberius says that, that you can see evidence of force and. Um, and resistance, which mm -hmm. suggests that there was a struggle as he was trying to get her out of the window and that nobody bothered to tidy it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just left the bureau knocked over and all this yeah, exactly. broken like perfume bottles on the ground. Down. Yeah, and that yeah. nobody thought, she probably tidied it up a bit. Um, and so his telling of that story is really funny. It ends up with Pronia's husband killing himself because um, his grandmother, who is this very famous woman, um, sends him a dagger in the post and is like, clean the, clean shame on the family. <laughs> you could stop it by dying immediately. That would be lovely. Um, so that one's a really good kind of story to tell. It's like the one and only time that um, he goes and, you know, like anyone investigates a murder, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like nobody's really investigating anything or bringing up evidence. Or anything Which I guess like is why they didn't bother to tidy up their fight scene. Yeah. 
just would never occur to them that Tiberius, the great emperor Tiberius, son of the deified Augustus, would nip around for a look. Yeah. Um, which is a fair thing. So I quite it like that It is a fair one. thing. Um, there's, a, there's another one that I really like that's in a court case, which is in um, Valerius Maximus, who wrote this story called um, Memorable Words and Deeds, which is just like a list of interesting things <laughs> <laughs> that he gave to Tiberius, actually, which is a story of um, two men who are pulled up in front of the, uh, the uh, front of a court, uh, and they are accused of murdering their father. Mm-hmm. And they're accused of murdering him because when... The, Which is like the only type of murder that Romans really don't... They only care about, yeah. Yeah. Um, they come in... This is where they draw the line. Yeah. So somebody, like, comes in to wake them up in the morning. And for some reason, the three of them share a room. So the dad uh-huh. and the, all the brothers who are adults and apparently elite and rich, like, they all share a room, whatever. Um, so they... He comes in to find on one side of the room the bloody, beaten to death body of the patriarch, and on the other side of the room, the two brothers fast asleep. Um, mm-hmm. No one else has entered or exited the room, um, and they swear it wasn't them. It's a kind of classic locked room mystery. Who could mm-hmm. it be? <laughs> Except that there were people in there. Except there were people in the room, and they swear it wasn't them. Um, and their reasoning is just, oh, they must have slept through it. But they get let off. Because the judge says no man could kill his father and then go to sleep afterwards. It would be physically impossible. Because <laughs> <laughs> it would be such a like travesty against the gods that going to sleep yeah. afterwards would be literally impossible. So they let him off, which means that they accept the possibility that someone else came in, beat their father to death without them noticing. <laughs> And then left again. And then they like they never they've got no interest in finding out who actually did do it. They're only interested in whether these two did it. And they can't it's, they can't wrap their heads around the idea that that could be possible. So they didn't. So the end. They get away with sure. it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Um, it's great. And there's all all kinds of the legal logic and like the moral logic of the Roman courts. I just find so fascinating because it's just the exact opposite of what you would expect from. <laughs> I mean, it does feel a little bit like everything that happens. They're just making it up as they go along. They're just like, oh, I've never heard of this before. What, um, what do? Pretty much, yeah. Um, and yeah. there's no, just whoever, whatever priester happens to be there at the time is just like, <laughs> doesn't seem likely to me that I could beat my father to death and then we could all go home. So I guess, yeah, I guess you could. So physically impossible. Nobody could have done it. Um, I did find it interesting that uh, murder turns out to be one of the only one of the only areas in which we have a fairly decent-ish amount of information about people who are not important men because of the uh, tombstones. Because of tombstones, it made me feel so. So the sometimes when someone gets murdered, their family puts a tombstone up that describes. The entire murder and who did it, and yeah. that's it. Makes me feel like we are underusing our own. <laughs> in the it's true. Era. All we put is like beloved father and son or whatever. Yeah, but you some dates. Make it significantly bigger and put a detailed description of your murder on there. Yeah, or uh, even I mean, it doesn't even have to be a murder. Just however you died. Just write a wee short story about it. 
some of the like tombstones in the Latin world are very useful um, because obviously you have to have enough money to be able to afford a big tombstone and to be able to write all those words on it. But they do quite like sharing information on them and having it because they're all out like along the um, along the side of the the main roads, basically going in and out of the city. So <laughs> people can stop and read them as they're going past, and you can tell people what you want. Um, and especially from the a lot of those are from the provinces in Italy and, and the Mediterranean. So you can see what terrible murders happened in like Croatia in the third century when a 10 year old girl was beaten to death for her jewelry and her parents mm. decided to put it on a tombstone or some guy was mugged and didn't survive on his way to Pretoria or something. It's great. Yeah, it's handy. Good record keeping. It is. It is. It's very useful. Um, and it, that was good, quite good for when I was doing the murder by magic, um, because Romans believe very strongly in magic and consider it to be just a very important part of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got quite a... And also, they don't really have the medical knowledge that the modern world has. So if you get, like, lupus or something or malaria, not malaria, they knew what malaria was, but, you know, something strange yeah. that causes mysterious pains and weird swellings and your face to go purple, um, then they didn't know what it was. So quite so often it would be a, a magical curse. Yeah. yeah. And so, you, they, like, we get quite a lot of tombstones where it say things like, you know, cursed to death or whatever, um, yeah. and, or cursed by X, by so-and-so, which is always very fun I think that's what I'm going to have put on mine. Just, just blame somebody. Just blame somebody. Someone cursed, cursed me. By so I died. Yeah. That'd be your final win. <laughs> <laughs> it would. It would. As you go down, like, no, he won't be able to argue about it. Everybody would always be on 2,000 years. Yeah. We'll find it and be like, Damn it. <laughs> um, obviously, one of the big ways in which people died in Rome was being having the misfortune to be an enslaved person. It is um, a very common way of making people die. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, uh, and there was a lot of enslaved people, about billions of them. Yeah. It's horrible. That was the hardest chapter to write because I had to think about Roman slavery for a very long time and it was very depressing. Um, yeah, but it's one of those things where technically in Rome that didn't count as murder. Oh, no, because they don't count as people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> they are uh, enslaved people are effectively furniture uh, yeah. like you can eventually I think it is under Hadrian well it's said in a text which is called the Scriptores Historia Augusta which is like the least trustworthy thing that has ever been created um, to the extent that people don't know whether it is supposed to be fiction or not uh, mm -hmm. or how many people wrote it um, or whether you can believe a single sentence in it sure um, and the uh but there's a bit in there which says that hadrian said that you couldn't kill slaves anymore um but then that's not in the legal record but like gradually it stopped being like there become limits on what you can do to the enslaved people in your household but mm -hmm. um for a lot of roman history for like the entire republican period and a significant portion of the early imperial period you can just kill them on purpose because they annoy you or because they're ill or because they're old or because you just don't want them around anymore and they're not worth anything or because they get injured like a horse and 
no nobody will stop you <laughs> um or you can abandon them on an island because they're ill and leave them to die which is a thing that they have to legislate against under claudius um because people keep dumping them on an island in the tiber um and there's just all these old ill injured enslaved people <laughs> there that have like like you might take a dog to the pound and drop it off <laughs> just so i don't want to deal with this anymore yeah, or like those people who like dump dogs in the woods or whatever. Um, you just abandon them. Or like quite a lot of like, oh, if you beat them to death by accident, then obviously that's fine. Um, and like the first law that comes in, which kind of regulates what you can do to an enslaved person, says that you're not allowed to just send them off to be fed to the beasts as food um, willy-nilly. You have to get the... Um, the permission of a praetor basically so you have to make a case and have them say okay yeah fine um they are quite annoying i guess they could be eaten by a wolf sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> um which may kind of makes it worse almost because that makes it so that there are now almost state sanctioned reasons why it's okay to feed a person to an animal <laughs> well i feel like this is i think this is i think the last question I will ask before we turn it over to the okay. Q&A. The questions are mounting up in there. But, and I, but I do feel like we need to address it since we're talking about violent deaths in Rome. Because one of the ways enslaved people were killed was via the medium of gladiatorial combat. Uh, yes, they so, were. Obviously that's something that from now looks like this big bombastic <laughs> thing. Yep. So to what extent is our understanding of what that looked like accurate? If your understanding comes from Gladiator or The Life of Brian or almost any televisual uh, representation of it, then it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're saying Gladiator starring Russell Crowe isn't historically accurate? Oh no! My editors made me take, made me take out a slag on that film because <laughs> I had a thing about, um, you know, it's not all... Uh, Something about it's not all Russell Crowe marching around like a smug twat saying, are you entertained? To which I would reply, not particularly. <laughs> uh, he said it was confusing as to whether I was entertained by Russell Crowe. And I was like, obviously I'm unentertained by Russell Crowe. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I took out some of that. But um, the, the image that you get from that is always that someone has been sent in against like five guys to be murdered essentially like to be executed or as a small guy against a big guy or there's like someone's at a disadvantage but really it is it's a sport about fighting and the idea is that it's supposed to be like in one-on-one -on -one combat which is like the highest form of it it's supposed to be two of the finest most trained most perfect fighters in their form fighting for dominance and one of them might die at the end um, and there's quite a lot of argument about how often that would happen on purpose and it's generally thought that you know you might see like one in five somebody might die on purpose maybe um but you are definitely going to see two guys who are very very good at fighting mm -hmm. fighting um or you're going to see five of one type and five like five retarii and five versus five whatever um and they're gonna fight um and you're watching it in order to watch 
both the thrill of, of combat in the same way that you watch boxing basically <laughs> obviously i hate boxing <laughs> um, but like that's it's essentially that's the thrill of it is you're watching two people who are very very good at what they do bash each other really hard and very competently mm-hmm. but with the extra thrill that one of them might genuinely get stabbed in the throat sure. um which would be very exciting um, and i watched i talked to a load of people and a guy from the army from the Marines, like American Marines, who I decided not to ask where he knew this information from. And like a couple of people from like um, A&E doctors was like, mm-hmm. so if somebody like got stabbed in the jugular, if they were particularly excited, what might that look like? And they were all like, oh, you'd get like six, seven foot arc of blood. <laughs> like it would look probably brilliant. Like, yeah, very dramatic. All this yeah. weird on the sandy ground. So you've got, you know, so what would happen is, one somebody would go down and would you have to put your hand up basically to say that you surrender and then mm-hmm. what can happen is that everybody goes um and everybody goes home or the editor who's the person who put the games on can decide that it would actually be mega fun to have that person die yeah sure and um no one knows what this is like you can make your own thing up it just says turned thumb in marshall so it could be anything um but there there will be a moment like a pause where everybody goes quiet and or the crowd start cheering and there is a decision to be made which is super exciting right like there's this yeah. moment where you're like am i going to see someone die or am i not am i just going to see a, and like that decision is going to be made by somebody else and it's super and then you have this kind of kind of diffusion of responsibility like who did the killing was it the actual person who did the stabbing or was it the person who decided he would be doing the stabbing or uh, was it fate and the gods um, yeah it sounds super cool but it's not like it would they're very clear in all of the sources that it's very boring to watch a good guy against a shit guy like of course nobody it is. wants to watch manchester united against i don't know who's good these days I don't know. Football. I don't know who's good at football. Like play Brighton and Have Albion. Like it's just not very exciting. Um, you're just watching a man get trampled, and you can see that in the executions. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> um, we will go to the Q and A now. I think. If, right. Is Oliver here, or has his internet failed? His internet's been going up and down. So I am here. Hello. Yay. Um, do you want to manage manage our Q&A? If anyone has further questions, if you drop them in the Q&A field yeah. rather than the chat field, because there's too much in the chat field. We're not I'm going to answer the question from Beth M first, which was asked ages ago. Um, unfortunately, I cannot control Livia in any way, shape or form. Um, <laughs> last ah, I time I saw her, she was downstairs on the sofa uh, asleep. So I assume that she is still there. Yes. We did get to see her earlier when we were doing a wee technical test. So yeah. we got Livia and unfortunately you guys do not. She was only here for the dress. She was. She was here for that because she wanted to get fed and now she's been fed. Uh, so now she has little to no interest in me. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that she is downstairs asleep with Connor. Um, so Connor is watching from downstairs so he might tell me if she is um, <laughs> asleep or not. He might not. I don't know. <laughs> um, but 
hopefully Connor is watching because I'm going to need a refill in a minute. So Connor downstairs, two floors below. Want to go to the <laughs> fridge? That would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, other questions? Okay. All right. So Catherine Orsund asks Emma, what primary sources do you use for your history research? Do you go to archives or is it mostly books or online? Um, it's Very mostly online um, and I'm very lucky to live in an online world um, because a lot of stuff has been digitized um, or has been um, put online in some way which is super useful so for things like uh, so the Loeb online is super great for um, literary sources so they have a lot of the uh, literary sources and the Loeb editions. Um, hang on, I'll grab that in one second. When I set this up, it's up, which is lovely. Um, my, I painted a, a black wall behind me, which is blackboard paint, um, and it's delightful. And in October last year, this was the best idea I'd ever had. And then there was a global pandemic, and I had to spend a surprising <laughs> amount of time on video. Um, I thought I'd probably write in a load of books behind me to look much cooler but I do hope hang on <laughs> you're you're missing out on being judged by that twitter account that judges everyone's bookshelf probably for the best because I did like an absolute wanker um, <laughs> so this is some Terence so they have I don't know if you can see them in this weird light but they have like latin on one side and mm. the english on the other so mm. you can see whether uh, you betrust their uh, Translation, basically, which I like because nice. ninety-eight. It also time, makes no. you look really smart because you're reading a book that's twice <laughs> the length that it is. Yeah, so um, very impressed. Loeb online um, is amazing, so I use that a lot, a lot for um, for the literary sources because it's got almost everything and it's got a load of weird stuff, and you can also check the Latin, um, which I like because I don't like to go by translation, translation, the whole thing. Um, and then there's lots of uh, like epigraphic databases, which are amazing. They're mostly in German for some reason, but that's <laughs> super good. Um, and uh, lots of like book databases as well and online libraries. And it's amazing what you can get into when you have borrowed the institutional logins of three of your friends. Uh, <laughs> um, which is very useful. I feel um, like you have to do that to survive because academia doesn't pay very much and academic resources are very expensive. Yeah, and without it, um, without the borrowed academic logins, Connor has come to bring me a drink because he's lovely and turned the light on a fly. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to avoid being on camera as much as he can. Um, he, yeah, without those, I wouldn't really be able to do anything um, because everything is behind a paywall. But I have very good friends who are very kind to me. But yeah, so I primarily do it online. If I need to, I will go to the like British Library or um, the library down in Dublin, the National Library down there. But I don't have to as often as you would think. You can do a surprising amount online and with tax deductible buying things online. I also work for a bookshop, so I get 50% discount on books. So I buy quite a lot of stuff as well <laughs> and then uh, take it off my taxes at the end of the year. But yeah, if sometimes if I can't find something online, I just buy it, mm. which is not as ideal as it would be. But um, yeah, that discount is honestly. 
Uh, Connor worked at Waterstones for about six years, uh, one day a week for five hours, just so he could keep the discount card. <laughs> I mean, that seems reasonable. I get a bit of a discount just because I, I, because I, I have a Society of Authors membership, and it's even that, I'm like, this is, yeah. this is precious. <laughs> this is a precious resource. It is. That's one of the main reasons why I'll never leave. Um, so yeah so but you can do a lot online and I do try to put as many of the results like there's a lot of free resources so if you want to look up what I've used um, a lot of the time if you google it you'll find it online somewhere even if it's somewhere dodgy (laughs) (laughs) okay next Uh, Mati Yukimo I assume is Finnish uh, says, how did you come up with the previous subtitle for your Agrippina book? Oh, Empress Exo Hustler Such a good title. Uh, <laughs> um, I honestly just came up with it. Like, it just kind of popped into my head. And when I was doing a proposal for Scott, because it rolls off the tongue really nicely and assumed at some point that somebody would make me change it. Um, but they didn't. <laughs> it sounds like a PJ Harvey, Harvey song. It's just so good. I'm still mad at the Americans for making you change it for the American edition. I know. Um, I know. The Americans for this one made me take out quite a lot of fucks. That's <laughs> what you get when you settle your country with Puritans. <laughs> there were 54 uses of the word fuck in the UK edition. And <laughs> I think I got it down to 19 for the US edition, so... (laughs) If anyone watching is in America and wants the British edition with the full swearing, (laughs) then there is book... Book Depository is available to you. It (laughs) is. Triple Uh, wide for free. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, the American cover of Agapino is also wild. I worried for a long time that people would pick it up and think that it was going to be a terribly serious, like, stayed book and mm-hmm. terribly seriously about things um and not have quite so many jokes about Claudius's dick uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thus far I've only had good feedback uh, which is good yeah um, <laughs> okay uh, Adam Ceriche please tell me if that's wrong uh says is that a giant champagne glass or some excellent false perspective <laughs> it is quite a big champagne glass actually um like it's about the size of my hand. So it's a mixture of both, I would say. Okay, and next, Michael Kwan asks, Rome didn't have what we would consider as a police force. Were there any officials who had the task of investigating murder? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they had a kind of enslaved, um, in the imperial era, like a, a kind of... Um, kind of peacekeeping force but not to do with prosecution more like beating up other people who are causing trouble um but investigation was just never a part of it was up to it prosecution is always a private matter broadly um and if you want to prosecute somebody for murdering a member of your family or a friend or someone that you vaguely know then you can bring that prosecution, but it's up to you to do, or you're the, the person that you hire to represent you in court. So quite a lot of the murder cases that are in there are Cicero's murder cases that he defended or prosecuted because he um, would be hired by a family to defend the person who had been uh, accused 
and then he would go and do a bit of investigation. Sometimes that investigation was just thinking up a conspiracy theory in his head, but if he could <laughs> argue it successfully, then that was good enough. Um, so deciding in that sort of situation where it actually does become some form of trial, deciding whether or not who is right is just a matter of who is better at public speaking. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Which <laughs> is probably, to be argument? fair, not untrue about the current legal system. Yeah, I mean, and the ability to argue a case and to construct a case and to put if it together. If I know together. anything about the law from watching years of Alan Beale, it's that having a really good closing statement is all you need to win a case. Basically. Yeah. Um, that's my understanding of all legal things, yes. Yeah. Um, but, and also, I actually live in low-key fear of having to be on a long trial as a juror because I don't know that I could handle the boredom because it just looks so... Because I listen to all of... Like, I listen to quite a lot of true crime broadcasts and stuff. They're like, and the cross-examination of so-and-so went on for five days. And you're like, like I'm bored thinking about five days of two yeah. people talking. It's exhausting. <laughs> um, but they, yeah, but they would just have, like, you, Cicero would give a speech that went on for six hours. Um, mm -hmm. And that was good if it was Cicero and bad if it was virtually anybody else. And they might bring in some character witnesses and a crying child, perhaps. But that was, that was it. There was no, there's nobody official who's in charge of making sure that things get prosecuted or investigating things or making just, they're worried about corruption in the course sometimes but even then only sometimes <laughs> mm. and there's no like real standard to which these sorts of things are held it's just you get what yeah. you get you get what you get yeah if the court finds you guilty you're guilty if the court finds you not guilty you're not guilty um the sure. end yeah <laughs> they are i think that we have uh, this tendency to imagine rome as a lot more organized than it was particularly in the um republican period as a much more of a an official state that had a lot more power over its citizens lives when it both didn't and wasn't particularly interested in having that power like it was interested in in certain things and it becomes more and more interested as it becomes more and more centralized until you get to like the dominant in the later imperial period when they start when you get trajan being like nobody can gather in groups larger than six um sure yeah <laughs> um but beyond that they're not not that interested as long as you're not causing trouble as long as you're not stabbing a console then mm. they don't really care um mm. yeah <laughs> okay moving on <laughs> tanya tate asks is the patricide penalty of being sewn into a sack and thrown in the tiber real or a myth it's real um, Israel, Cicero's brother did it to at least two people, um, according to Cicero's brother, <laughs> uh, who's called Quintus. When no he reason was, to doubt him. <laughs> yeah, when he was governor of somewhere that I now forget, somewhere in the east. Um, but yeah, no, it was real. Um, at the very least, they would sew you in. So the punishment, for those of you who don't know, is you get sewn in a sack. Uh, first you get lashed, you get tied, and you get lashed with red sticks. Don't know why they have to be red. Um, and then you are sewn into a sack, and into the sack is also put a dog, a monkey, a snake, and a chicken. Such a weird assortment of animals. Yeah, and no one ever... What's a chicken going to do? 
no one ever explains like why those animals cicero has this whole thing when he's defending a patricide case about what the sack is about which is that you're sewn into the sack so that you can never you are cut off from the air and the earth and the water and even when your body comes to rest your bones won't be able to settle into the earth because you will always be uh, kept away which is all very poetic but no one ever I've explains got some bad news for him about decomposition <laughs> um but no one explains what the rest of it is about anyway so he's sewn up into you're sewn up into the sack and then you're thrown into a river um so you drown horribly while fighting a terrified dog monkey snake and chicken <laughs> who were also drowning who were also drowning and presumably very upset and there's a bit where seneca the elder talks about um being horrified like being terrified that he might like get so to a set like just the horror of the situation um but it's probably were i to be generous i'd say you you were probably more likely to just be sewn into the sack and flung into the sea um, because sure. getting hold of the other things was probably not that easy. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be worth the trouble. You are just going, you are going to drown. Like, and regardless, getting a monkey, like you've got to go to North Africa, you've got to get the monkey, you've got to bring it back, put it in the sack. Like, that's an investment. Um, this is exact, Joshua, exactly. Like, that's, a, that's an expensive thing to throw into the sack. Yeah. Um, but um potentially a couple of people were sewn in with all component of animals but i suspect that most of them were just sewn in and found horribly or with <laughs> one to four of those animals but yeah it is real um it is definitely a thing that happened to people <sighs> um god knows how they came up with it but a fever dream <laughs> is my only guess <laughs> they're a strange people um yeah and there's quite a lot of of descriptions of the horror of it like it's supposed to be like it's not something that the romans took lightly like they genuinely thought that it was appalling and there's quite a lot of whenever it pops up it is in a kind of like can you believe that we would ever like this is <laughs> a punishment that is beyond appalling to the romans because the crime was beyond appalling so <laughs> it's not like they did it for funsies not like throwing people to beasts that was great art yeah. This is just to be appropriate to the crime. Yeah, exactly. This was a terrible sure. thing. Having someone get raped to death by a bull, that's a Saturday. Throwing someone into the Tiber in a, in a sack, very serious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Graham Duke asks, regarding it not be a, being a crime to kill a slave, were there any notable cases where there were serious consequences to a highly favoured slave being killed? For example, one who had an important role for a prominent general or politician. There are not, no. The only one where there's like a, what might be considered consequences is there is a, and this is in the book, is that there is a case that Cicero is prosecuting of a guy called Panergus, who is an enslaved guy who's been bought by two people um, who are pals so that they buy him cheap and then their plan is to train him up as an actor so that he'll be worth more um, and then once he's trained up and kind of makes a name for himself they'll be able to sell him so um, which is apparently a classic money-making scheme <laughs> um, but a third party murders Panergus um, over who knows what and the 
case goes to court because the third party says that he should only have to pay the amount that the two originally paid for him because that's what he was worth mm -hmm. as compensation and they argue that he should pay what uh, Panergus would be worth were they to sell him today having had all of his acting training mm -hmm. so it's less of a conversation about murdering a person and more about like if I bought these shoes and then made them unique in some way and yeah. then you spilt wine on them like do you have to pay me the amount that I paid for the shoes or the amount that I would make if I sold the shoes <laughs> yeah it's not about the life of a person um which is is one of the points at which writing about ancient death gets a bit grim because it is still a bit too real because there are a lot of parallels to the slave trade in which we yeah. are all complicit by virtue of being white <laughs> yeah and it, and the, you know the, well, the three, Roman, the three of us i don't know if everyone watching is white obviously but uh roman slavery is just ubiquitous like it's everywhere the whole economy and the whole empire rests upon it. It cannot exist without slavery. Everything that comes into Rome that allows Rome to exist comes in because the mines and salt mines and the fields are full of enslaved people. Um, and thousands and thousands of them everywhere. Um, and they are also in everybody's house, <laughs> like hundreds mm -hmm. of them. At one point, like, when you get to when you see the numbers that some of the very very rich people kind of have like um there's one case where a guy is murdered by an enslaved member of his household and he has 400 people in this one house and he owns more than one house so he has more but the rule at the time is if one enslaved person murders the master everybody is crucified um and so 400 people are crucified um, men, women, and children, um, and there is a riot about it because the kind of the average people of Rome are like. Um, but the Senate have a debate about it, and they're like, "No, we can't. Like, they all have to die." And then you get people who are like, "They die," and in their will, there's like, "And I grant my eight thousand enslaved people to." <laughs> like, that is wild like one person owns this many people and so yeah. they just don't even though you see the odd one like cicero's secretary who is enslaved and you see freed slaves um but there's just no they are useful as furniture effectively they're not the only they're not ever seen as people the only consequences that seem to come up are how that anything that happens to that enslaved person affects the person who owned them yeah it affects their dignity in a way um, mm. but also it's like but even then like in the law codes and when you see them talking about it they're like it's as if you broke their bars <laughs> like yeah. that was my bars um rather than you hurt a person or like like Rome's yeah. a fucking horrible man <laughs> i mean i feel like so so were we <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah um, but it just, yeah. it, I think it's one of the things that comes up just because I think it's been in the news a lot recently because of everything being on fire. The fact that the UK only just a couple of years ago paid off the debt that it incurred when it abolished slavery, the slave trade. Uh, yeah. 
but that that was money that they paid to slavers because they lost property and they didn't yeah, yeah. compensate the the enslaved people for losing for having lost their freedom. It's it's still it is a very the attitudes are very similar. They are very similar. <laughs> it turns out that robbing people of their humanity in order to get them to work for you for free just lasts for centuries. It's never the good. Difference is that in there are always some groups of people and like there's Methodists everywhere at least. <laughs> and but in the Roman world, like you'll never find a rich Roman guy being like, hey guys, do we ever think that maybe these are like people? <laughs> and also and the other thing is that a lot of them were captured by war. Like um a lot of them are, are, are People who, particularly in the earlier period, are people who are captured and brought in because Rome invaded Gaul, or Rome invaded Macedonia, or Rome invaded Turkey, or, you know, and that's how people flood into Italy. They are, you know, I always banging on about Julius Caesar being a genocidal maniac, but he murdered over a million people and then brought more than a million back to Rome in enslavement. Like, that's how people become slaves, basically. Um, yeah, it's not great. It's not fun. It's not fun. It's not fun. It is a different thing to, um, you know, the, to the transatlantic slavery, slave trade, and it is different in a lot of ways, but it is still, still fucking horrible. Yeah. That was the hardest chapter to write. It was really hard to... <laughs> yeah. Um, to think about it and to not like lie down on the floor and just be like oh my god the world is horrible and people are awful that and the baby murder section it's not not so fun sorry about the baby murder section (laughs) okay millie bywater asks so if there was no police force could someone just not show up to their trial oh no they couldn't Uh, (laughs) so literally so the first ever roman law code is a 12 tables it's written in like 500 bc um, it's the first time that they codify law. And literally, law number one of Roman law, first thing they ever wrote down, and their most important law, bar none, was if you are called to court, you show up. What That's, happens to you if you don't? Then you get executed. Like, you just don't. Um, but it's not, they didn't really tend to do, like, like, it's not like you go to prison or anything. They only have prisons. They have a prison for people who are waiting to be executed. But, like, the ostracism would be, like, if you didn't show up to court, everybody would know that you didn't show up to court. Like, Rome's not that big. Yeah. Um, especially when that was written, there's about eight people. But, um, <laughs> but, like, literally rule number one is when you're called to court, you show up to court. <laughs> the only way that you don't show up to court is if you leave and move to, like, Marseille. Um, in which case everybody thinks you're effectively dead. Sure, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but no, you could say they were, that is literally the, the first law that they wrote. <laughs> okay, Helen Zuckerman asks, was murder considered the highest crime in Rome or were there more horrible crimes in Roman public and legal opinion? Uh, it wasn't really considered to be a crime at all. Parasite was, like killing a member of your family particularly a father or a mother, that was a crime. Um, and that was a terrible crime because it, it was almost kind of polluting against the gods. 
and pollute and it was it was considered to be disgusting but murder itself was not really considered to not a crime in the way that you would like in the way that we would think of it and it wasn't even necessarily illegal because what they have a lot of is um revenge killings <laughs> um so revenge and honor killings are surprisingly common um in rome and one of the most interesting things i just wrote a and there's a thing in this month's um, history today that I wrote about this. So there's this really, there's a two really interesting cases um, whereby someone is brought to court by their family. They're always a woman um, because they have murdered their a member of their family. So the most famous one, which is in three or four sources, is this woman in Smyrna, which is in Turkey, who is brought before Dolabella, who's the governor. Um, because she has murdered her husband and her son um, and she poisoned them um, and there's another case which is a bit earlier with a woman who's brought before the court in Rome because she's murdered her mother she beat her mother to death um, and in both cases the defendant says look yeah I did do it but I did it because they murdered my children so in the first case the husband and son murdered her um, her son from a previous marriage, um, presumably in order to not have to split the inheritance. Mm -hmm. And in the other case, the mother had poisoned her own grandchildren uh, for reasons unknown. Just it says out of spite, <laughs> sure. um, which seems a bit much, but um, for whatever reason. Um, and this situation deadlocks the court in both occasions. Like it means that it just cannot go either way because she cannot be so the woman in Smyrna cannot be guilty of murder because what she has done is enact revenge mm -hmm. and that is fine like the people who died did a terrible thing and so they cannot um like killing them cannot be wrong but equally she murdered a member of her family and that cannot be right um so and so it's a classic paradox yeah exactly and it, um so valerius maximus who writes about this says you know there's no you can't go either way you can't say that one killing was wrong unless you say that the other killing was right but neither mm. um and so the in the woman of smyrna uh, um bumps the case to the areopagus in athens which is this very very ancient court which meets on this rock um at the bottom of the um acropolis it's mm -hmm. a horrible rock i've sat on it many times and very uncomfortable <laughs> um but they meet there and they're this very ancient near mythological god they're the court that supposedly was kind of brought into force in order to um decide whether um arrestees should be prosecuted for murdering his mother after she murdered his father um mm -hmm. And they, uh, so he bumps it to the Areopagus so that he doesn't have to make a decision. But the Areopagus is made up of like Greek businessmen and politicians who are ruled by Romans. So they can't really go against the Romans. So they can't make a decision. So what they do is go, look, we'll think about it for a while, come back in 100 years, and then everybody goes home. <laughs> um, Perfect. Yeah, we'll make a decision, but just not until after everyone is dead. Exactly, but the interesting thing there is that you they 
had no, so one of them happens in the Republic, um, in the early Republic, one happens in the late Republic, and at no point can anybody say that revenge killing is a wrong thing to do. Like, if someone killed mm -hmm. a member of your family and you killed them, then that's fine. You can't say that that's a bad thing, mm -hmm. which leads to the supposition that there were people going around, and anytime somebody got killed, somebody else got killed. Yeah. Um, and the revenge killing was more common than you might want to imagine on the streets of Rome. Because a revenge killing in June is another revenge killing. Yeah, exactly. Just like in West Side Story. There's a story, which is one of my favorite stories, from a much, much, like a non-Roman source called Gregory of Tours, who wrote um, under the Merovingian kings of Gaul, um, who writes a story of revenge killing is going back and forth um, in this French town that ends up with only one member of each family standing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's not really supposed to work like that. Like one person, like a, a death, and there's, there's a death, and then both families have lost somebody, and everyone's even. So you just go fair enough so and move on. It would keep going backwards and forwards, um, and then there's like two members, like one member of each side standing, and they're just like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should call this off, lads. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, but but yeah, so it wasn't. You, in a situation where revenge and honour killing are no, not necessarily, I don't want to say normal, because I don't want to make that much of a kind of state, but at le very least common enough that then it can't be a crime, basically. Sure. Um, unless you're murdering your dad, in which case. Jamie Drew asks... Hello, Jamie Drew. Oh, this will be good. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to murder someone in ancient Rome, how would you do it? in a way that you wouldn't get caught? Uh, an excellent question, Jamie Drew. How would I do it in a way that I wouldn't get caught? Uh, poison's always good. Um, but I feel like we know a lot of the people who poisoned other people, so technically they did get caught. Some of them got caught. Um, <laughs> if I ever have to date again, this is a question I'm going to ask people. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but that's quite a good one. But I'll tell you, the main thing, stab them in the street. No one ever gets <laughs> <laughs> Like, no one... People will assume it's bandits, uh, especially if you get them on a street outside of the city. It's not like there's lighting. Um, and no one ever gets... No one ever really gets caught. Unless you are a bandit who is... Kind of gets famous for murdering loads of people or for becoming a problem in a specific area. You stab someone in the street. If you manage to get um, lucky in the street, then no one will ever know. And, like, no one's investigating it properly, so it's actually a lot easier than to kill someone and get away with it than it is now. If you steal their watch or whatever, then yeah. they'll assume that it was, I don't know, a gang of roaming assassins yeah. or just an opportunistic poor person. There's only one detective and half the time he's too busy with dinosaur bones. And he's, yeah, exactly, and he's only around for, like, 30 years, so he's not going <laughs> to show up. He is only interested if you happen to be the daughter of one of his closest friends. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you could just stab him in the street and you'd get away with it easy. No one would ever bother checking. Mm. Um, yeah, surprising how often. And even if they did come round, it's amazing how often you can read the court stuff and you can just make up a clearly deranged story about why you were there with a bloody knife. Um, and, and somebody, be like, yeah. and everyone would be like, oh yeah, I've seen that. It's fair enough. Your daddy is quite nice. We do like your dad. 
<laughs> which is a surprise like a surprising amount of people like well, your dad is very famous so yeah no, it doesn't seem very like <laughs> what you were doing just like today a very similar <laughs> mark mccann asks what's your favorite rome themed film or tv show uh i very much enjoy the life of brian despite its poor showing on the gladiatorial front <laughs> uh, big fan of it. Really like Rome, actually. HBO's Rome. Um, we rewatched about half of that recently, and it's cracking. Um, yeah, no, I really like. I really like Rome. Um, what else is there? Those two are the main ones, I reckon. Yeah. And on a similar note, Naomi oh. asks. Sorry, Naomi Holford asks, "What other books about Rome would you enjoy? Do you enjoy reading, or would you recommend?" Um, I'm also going to say. Uh, Bob Guccione's Caligula, which is a terrible film in every possible metric, like from beginning to end, awful in every way. But I, um, what were books I recommend? Uh, do you want non-fiction or fiction, Naomi? I'm gonna wait for like three seconds and hope that she is still around. Both, thanks. Um, uh, all right, for fiction, I really like uh, the Lindsay Davis books. I think they're great. Um, there was not really any kind of like gumshoeing around, um, but the the Lindsay Davis um, Falco books are really good reads. They're like murder mysteries in Rome. They have a lot of like, um, oh, uh, rich girl has been found dead in a warehouse. Um, which is just wildly unrealistic, but it's very good fun. Um, and they have Vespasian in them, and uh, they're just good reads. I really enjoy them. Um, and Falco is a good character, and his wife is even better. So, yeah, they're good fun. Um, for nonfiction, I really like this book that came with a BBC program, which is just, I think it's just called Ancient Rome um, by Simon Baker, which is one that I give to people a lot, um, which is kind of jump, it does vignettes from um, various points in Roman history. Um, and that's really good. And I like the way that it does vignettes so it doesn't try to tell a cohesive story of any kind. So if you like, if you want to kind of, it does, you know, the Gracchi, the, the brothers Gracchi, and then it does certain emperors, and then it kind of skips along um, and does important bits. I like that book a lot. Um, and I'm a massive fuss. I'm trying to think of non-academic books that people might actually enjoy <laughs> reading. I like um, them all. <laughs> yeah, because uh, all the I'm, like, I'm looking at my thing and there's just a lot of like I'm a massive. I don't really read non-fiction books in the way that most people do which they don't start at the beginning and then go through to the end I tend to read like a chapter and then mm. bounce um, around mine them for information rather than read them mm. um but, but I do enjoy Lindsay Davis a lot so I'm going to recommend her yeah nice yeah okay Catherine asks if you were murdered in ancient Rome does that affect how you are buried on the flip side, if you are a murderer, does that also affect how you're buried? Um, good question. That is a good question. It doesn't actually, no. Um, regardless, you are buried in pretty much the same way as, as well as your family can afford. 
unless you are a convicted parasite, in which case you're thrown into the fiber. Um, if you are convicted of uh, some kind of murder, which occasionally people are, you usually either kill yourself or um, are the, the kind of basic punishment if you're committed of a public crime, which is like a crime against the state. So if you murdered somebody like um, like if you murdered an emperor, so the people who murdered Caligula, for example, are are prosecuted and convicted. Um, are just outright convicted of murder by Claudius, and then are um, dragged. Your um, you're beheaded, and then your body is like dragged, thrown down some steps, and then you are dragged by hooks to the Tiber, and then your body is thrown in. Uh, words of some kind of oh shit what just happened i think we just had a wee glitch oh my screen has gone black and i do not know why <laughs> you were frozen there, there for go. a second but you're back now I'm so back that's now. what matters oh my screen just went black i don't know why but i'm just <laughs> going to pretend that didn't happen um <laughs> but if you like you know 98 percent of murders are street stabbings and um people like like they are today like people murdering other members of their family and their husbands and wives and children and grandparents um and then no <laughs> you're buried as well as your family can afford if you are well off then you might get a nice burial and if you're not then you get everybody gets cremated in rome um and then you either get cremated in a nice headstone or you get cremated and you're put in um they have like these they have they're quite cool actually like uh, almost like guilds for burials so you kind of buy into a um into a club and then mm -hmm. you get a spot in a um you can can't remember what the latin word for it is but they're like round rooms with little cubicles in them and the, in each cubicle mm -hmm. goes a little pot of ashes <laughs> and you buy water. Yeah, and you pay into it, and you get put, and you get put in an urn, and then you get put in the little, the little cubicle, and then you like you get a little plaque that says um, what your name is, and yeah. yeah. So, but it's not polluting in any way. Columbarium, thank you very much. <laughs> Both people, Matthew and Corin, having uh, a total mental block there. Yes. Okay. Next, Beth asks. How would they prosecute if there was no obvious evidence, as with certain kinds of poison? Were there any kind of forensics, or would there be religious restrictions? Um, there were no forensics. Cutting open a body would be considered deeply weird. Um, but there were, they were considered there to be, like, what well, they considered to be scientific signs of certain poisons. So, for example, when Germanicus dies, who is um, the father of Agrippina the Younger, um Suetonius writes that he when they cremated him his heart didn't burn um and that was considered to be evidence that he had been poisoned because obviously your heart sure was, uh, sure um <laughs> normally you do expect all parts of the body to be <laughs> <laughs> um that's a really interesting death actually because it's so confused as to whether it's poison or magic that it becomes very clear that poison and magic are effectively the same thing um, mm -hmm. But but things like they had they had things like that, or if people die, like the manner of their death was considered to be evidence of poisoning. 
um, or of magical interference. Um, and I'm pretty sure that 90% of the time it was dying of something that they just didn't know existed. Um, Which was probably most things. It was most things because they believe very strongly in humours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is obvious nonsense, but they <laughs> very keen on on the four humors stuff. Um, but no, they weren't really doing a lot. Of, I mean, they believed in wandering wombs and all kinds of strange yeah. and interesting <laughs> medical things. Um, but no, there was no, there wasn't anybody like testing people's blood or anything like that. Unfortunately. Okay, Dan Curtis asks. Was there any difference in attitude toward murder between the city of Rome and other provinces or colonies? Ooh, that is a good question. Uh, not that I know of. Um, I suspect that the major difference, like, oh, this is off the top of my head, so don't quote me on it or anything, would be that in the city of Rome, you have the most important people. And one of the most interesting things about kind of Roman murder is that the thing that makes it murder is when you kill somebody with dignitas and fama where they are your reputation and your good name and your good deeds um so if you are a consul or a praetor or something along those lines or a tribune then you have dignitas and fama and killing that person is a crime or is something which is very important because you have violated those two things rather than taken a life. Um, and, and so you're going to have more people with more dignitas and more people with more fama. And so it's going to be more important if you hurt those people, unless you happen to also have loads and loads of, like if you're a consul and you kill another former consul, then. Um, there's a bit of Mark Antony chases um, a tribune around the forum um, with a knife trying to kill him, <laughs> uh, which is less well known in popular culture than you think because it's a cracking story. Um, <laughs> and then he has to hide in a bookshop and lock the door behind him in order to hide from Mark Antony, which is um, but it, like if he had managed to kill him or there's a thing where a guy called Fimbra tries to kill somebody at a funeral, tries to kill uh, Pontifex Maximus. Um, and if those had been successful, then that would be an issue because both people had dignitas um, and both people had fama. But if in the provinces you're going to have less people who have empire significant dignitas if you know if you see what i mean is it likely like, that the areas of that were conquered by rome and brought into the empire your everyday man on the ground probably just went off unless they were like taken as enslaved people or put to work in a specific way for the empire but they basically have kind of continued on it's going to depend where you are if you're in anywhere that ends up being a roman city or a roman um settlement of any kind like then your life is probably going to change because romans were quite proactive in terms of romanite what's used to be called and it's less called these days romanization mm -hmm. um in terms of importing their culture into that city so if you 
live in um i don't know uh trying to think of an example like if you live in marseille or something then um which becomes a very important roman point or if you um live in any any cities which become settlements then yeah your life's going to change quite a lot because you're going to have suddenly a huge amount of building projects a huge amount of roman temples to roman gods a huge amount mm-hmm. of the they're going to have a governor who's going to come and hang out every so often with his entire family and his entire retinue and um roman officials are going to come in and you then you have the uh, uh, um decar uh who were like this council of 10 which is like um local government who then report up um and if you live rurally then maybe less so until somebody comes knocking on your door looking for taxes which they definitely will but (laughs) um if you're in any kind of city or any kind of large settlement then it's it's probably going to change a fair amount um Mm -hmm. and there's always the threat even if it doesn't that somebody could drag you in front of um that the roman systems could become a problem it's almost 8.30, so I think we should do maybe just one more question. And then okay. Is it 8.30 already? It's almost, yeah, it's 8.28. Time flies. Okay. It does fly. It does. Sabrina Schwartz asks, Emma, do you already have a new idea for a book? Um, maybe. <laughs> I have two that I'm sort of thinking about. Um, but uh, one of them is um one that a listener for fishery and sexy actually gave me which is possibly about the um syrian matriarchs the second julian dynasty the wife and uh, sister-in-law of uh, septimia severus julia domna um and her family who kind of ruled ruled rome at a period when it was transitioning into a military dictatorship effectively um and all of the good stuff and we have an episode on that and i can't remember what number is but it's the one about um women who are important after the julio claudians um so maybe that's what i'm poking at at the moment but we'll see if it pans out yeah someone's asked you janina if you can explain your twitter name so i'm going to ask you a question J9 and F is yeah. uh, because years and years ago now, back in 2012, maybe, maybe even 2000, yeah, it must have been 2012, I wrote a little one-act play about um, a girl and someone who was possibly some sort of magical being and possibly completely imaginary uh, that was called Human and F. So... That is where it comes from. I named, I named my Twitter name after my own work, which feels <laughs> like a really douchey thing to do. But um, I really liked the title and it will probably never see the light of day in any real form. So it's now it is all my social media handles on everything instead. One day you'll become monstrously famous and then after you die, they'll publish everything you ever wrote. Like that is unfinished the most draft. terrifying thought of all time <laughs> i was talking to someone today as a writer here in belfast called emma devlin about the 
worst possible scenario of having your stuff published after your death. And I've decided the worst possible scenario is that you are completely unknown and unpublished during your lifetime, um, but then discovered 10 years after you die. And everything is published, all your unfinished drafts, all of your notes, all of your DMs, all of your WhatsApp group chats um, with... And people do PhDs on your, like, DMs. I, I get enough anxiety about, um, and Hearts who just commented is going to understand this, I get enough anxiety about people selling on proofs, which are the people who don't work in publishing proofs are like the, the mock-up of your book before it's in its final form. So it's like you're basically your you're final draft, but not yeah. the complete version. And sometimes people sell them at charity shops and stuff, which is not, really cricket and I get paranoid enough about that I cannot handle someone just finds a random notebook which is you know 90% bullshit and then puts it on the market not that I'm ever going to be famous enough for that to be a profitable endeavor but just on the off chance <laughs> horrifying no I put it in my if I if I ever make a will it will just all it will say is I forbid anyone publishing anything after my death see I always think this but then I think that when Virgil died, the Aeneid was unfinished. The Aeneid, as we have it, is an unfinished first draft. And he made Augustus swear that he would burn it when he died. And Augustus published it. And now everybody now studies it. The Aeneid. And maybe Virgil is looking down from whatever the afterlife is and thinking, oh, this is horrible. Yeah, like, oh my God, the sentence is so terrible. <laughs> Um, so yeah, a lot of people are saying Terry Pratchett had his entire hard drive bulldozed when he dies. He wasn't even to the right part of yeah. the server once. <laughs> Just need to like a, a kill switch that you have to log into every day for to, to stop it erasing everything. So then the then you don't even yeah. think about it once you oh, die. Yeah. I think it's the only safe way because otherwise you end up like Sylvia Plath with like your shopping lists being <sighs> published and analysed by dreadful people. Yeah. I don't know. Which is, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Hux. <laughs> I don't, for some reason, that this is what my brain thought of today. Like the worst possible scenario for a writer would be that. It's just hor horrifying. Mm -hmm. No one needs those unfinished, weird essay drafts that everybody wrote. Um, <laughs> exactly. Like he worked hard on those B poems, and he's there being like, that's the clunkiest sentence that I've ever written. <laughs> Cursing yeah. Augustus. But then you also have situations where, like, Prince puts Nothing Compares to You as a B-side on his side project, and then it becomes mega famous because of Sinead O'Connor, and maybe he was like, fuck, I should have released it as a single myself. Maybe. Or maybe he's like, I don't know why people like that, it's clearly rubbish. Maybe. He was actually, he was actually really angry about that. I think he sued really? it, didn't he? <laughs> didn't he sue He sues everybody. Didn't Prince sue his own fans for having fan sites? I say didn't, he definitely did. You really <laughs> like when the internet first started and people started having like GeoCities fan sites, he sued loads of his own fans for setting up fan sites. Oh, that's not what you want to do, Prince. Yeah. Just before it became a Jehovah's Witness. Oh. <laughs> Bless him. Anyway. On that, on that note, thank you um, everybody for coming to listen to me talk. Yeah, um, if you haven't already, buy, I will buy a copy. Very, very good. Um, I started reading it, um, Emma sent me an e-copy a few weeks ago and I literally was like reading it in bed and just like shaking the whole bed with laughter. Just 
So definitely <laughs> read it. It's, it's better than me good. the other week when I was um, reading Piranesi by Susanna Clark <sighs> in bed and crying <laughs> so, so much that I was shaking the bed and Connor was like, what's happening? <laughs> um, I will have a wee look at the other questions that we didn't get time to and I'll Yeah, sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but thank well, you so much for... Uh, but thank you so much for coming. It yeah. Very fast. Um, and I hope that you um, enjoy the book. And if you don't, never tell me because I will literally <laughs> or cry for a year. Anyone. If you loved if it, you, tell everyone you know. If you didn't yeah. like it, then just. If you do like it, then please do go on to Amazon and give it a five star review. No, like, all nuanced three stars. Uh, <laughs> because we have to manipulate the algorithm. And the yeah, the algorithm is not built for nuance. And that no. any user rating system, um, it's not so, yeah, I would appreciate that very much. Um, and also listen to Within the Wires, uh, which it, oh, is, yeah. is it season five now? It's season five now. It's very good. I did also just remember before we log off entirely, we need to decide what we're doing for our next episode. What we do, and um, we promised that we'd show people how we do this. All right, this, this is literally how we do this. So I'm going to open up the document. Mm -hmm. uh, da, 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 da. Sorry about my very loud keyboard. Uh, while I'm doing this, I'm going to do an official um, congratulations to Oliver. Even though, <laughs> So one of the reasons why there was a very long wait in between was not only the fact that we were um, in the, a pandemic and it was terrible and we were all just weeping out of windows, but also uh, Oliver and his lovely wife, Barbara, had uh, their first child, Matt three months ago we um, did so he's how, very large is he sleeping now he's yes. very large <laughs> he's he fast asleep we have the baby monitor here washing um, him not doing very much uh well done well done him well done um, to max yeah. congratulations dream life. um but yes yeah, so that was <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the other reasons so congratulations to them it was uh it's like janina do you have the thing open uh it is loading okay. just give me oh two seconds what have we got we st i think for the time being we're still going to stick to fun things yeah because um because everything is horrible we do have barbara's question actually on a history of yeah. pets so the next kind of three uh are yeah uh birth control pets and cleanliness let's do pets let's do pets so our next episode will be a history of pets. Hooray. There we go. For Barbara. Yeah. She, she asked that question over a year ago and now we get there. Hooray. <laughs> so what happens is people ask questions and then about once every three weeks or so I go through and comb all of the ways that people can contact us and put it in a file. And then we look at like the ones that are coming up and we choose our favourite. <laughs> but we do get to all of them eventually. Um, yeah. It's about a year wait at the moment, but only because we have a six-month break every so often. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll try not um, to do quite so often going forward. Yeah. Um, so now you know what the other potential possibilities are. Um, we've actually got a couple of questions that came in quite uh, close about cleanliness, so we'll get to that at some point yeah. in the next few. Mm -hmm. But pets. Yeah. Um, there we go. Um, yeah, thank you ever so much for being here. Um, I'm going to see if either of my parents are still here. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> my mum is here. Hello, mum. 
Jamie's disappeared because I can hear him moving around. The and my dad is still things. here as well. So I'm going to say <laughs> hello to my mommy and hello to my daddy and hello to all of my uh, other members of the family who are probably sitting around and thinking for hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate. Hello, mum. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because they have excellent parents who support me lovely. Um, so yeah, um, I hope that they enjoyed it. Uh, not pits, gonna not no. pits. I'm sorry, I haven't. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's not your fault. Um, but yeah, so um, that's what we're gonna do. It's gonna be lovely. It'll be delightful. Yeah. Oh, I get to talk about Raymond. That'll be. Yeah, yeah, I've developed a low-key obsession with Roman birds as pets uh, for no good reason. Um, There's just a lot of them. Sure, I'm excited. I can't wait. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thank you everybody. Um, Yeah. That's everything. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye.